Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Hunt Talk Radio, better known or sometimes known as Randy Newberg Unfiltered. Um, this is another one of those episodes where it's going to be a Q&A session, and I've been accumulating the, the many, many questions a lot of you have had, mostly equipment related. And I'm, I'm always surprised that people want to know so much about what I use for equipment. I I'm not sure if if it's just hey they want confirmation that they're using something that is, makes sense or if if they're uh, looking for new ideas I I don't know um, for me what my equipment looks like over the course of a season probably is the result of I would guess 25 years of Western hunting and hanging out on our Hunt Talk website is probably the best advice that I could give somebody about picking up little tips here and tips there about equipment. And many of you know that if it's something I use, it's not necessarily something I get paid to use. Most of the stuff I use is equipment that I was using long before I started a TV show. And it just, you know, for me, if it doesn't work, I don't really care what it pays. It's just that simple. And I came to this Western hunting thing as a a whitetail hunter in northern Minnesota where we were all carrying our 30-30 and wearing our our wool Mackinac and walking in Sorrel boots. And, you know, it was was a very simple uh, setup, I guess you'd call it. The, The equipment list that I had was pretty short. And so when I came to the, the Western hunting landscape, it was a huge learning process for me about what I need, what works, what doesn't work. And I, I've almost come in some instances almost in a, a 360, a full circle, because there were times when I didn't have enough and then I thought, boy, I'm never going to be caught with without that or, or be caught in that situation again. And, and then I end up hauling so much junk around it looks like I'm running away from home and then you go back to the now I got a thin down idea and so over the course of time I've just come up with my own ideas that work for me and, and my style of hunting and the, for for people to look at what I use <clears throat> is it, I hope they look at it and understand that's not the the end all to everything it, it's not the the master list it's just how I hunt and what I need. And, and for me, because most of our hunts are backpack hunts, because most of our hunts are public land, all of our hunts are public land. Um, because a lot of times I'm carrying extra cameras and other gear. Those are things that you as a hunter, you're not going to need to deal with a lot, some of this stuff. So when I go through these questions and and these ideas, uh, take them for what they're worth, but I hope in the process of listening to this, you end up with a few tips that say, yeah, that's, that was worthwhile. Um, the, the whole premise of these questions have, has come from a lot of the questions people email me. Uh, we have some threads out on the Hunt Talk forum where people can ask, you know, what do you want for a guest? What do you want for a topic? Stuff like that. And so I've, I've kind of pruned those and, and went through them and, and tried to accumulate them in something that I think is a little bit uh, useful. And when, when we get into them, I think you'll realize that these are pretty much applicable to, 
any Western big game hunting. Um, most of it's going to be applicable to the backpack type hunting that we do. But if it works for that, <clears throat> odds are it's probably going to work for some of your hunting. And we'll just uh, go through some of that. Uh, if you go out to our YouTube channel, we've done three videos that are called the bag dumps. Um, and that's how I kind of started this idea of accumulating equipment questions is I, I thought, you know what, everybody keeps asking me this. Why don't I just do a bag dump is what I called it. Um, and it was pretty much the base gear that I use. And that video I think is 14 or 15 minutes long and it's called Randy Newberg's bag dump. And, and really what I did is I went and grabbed my, my backpack and just started pulling stuff out of there and saying, this is what I use, this is for this, this is for that. And that generated a ton of questions. And the, the three real follow-up videos to it were, one, just more general follow-up questions. Uh, kind of like, hey, Randy, in your first bag dump, you didn't say anything about toilet paper. Uh, I just thought that was a given. Who, who goes anywhere without toilet paper? But uh, And then with the follow-up questions video, we did uh, another one about staying warm because a lot of people ask me, how do you do these active hunts, climb up the mountain glass all day, and still stay warm. So we cover that in the staying warm video. And then the other part about is boots and warm feet. Um, and I'm going to get into some of that stuff here, but if there's things here that, that you don't hear me cover, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to be, or, or if you go to the YouTube videos, the bag dump series, um, you're going to be able to pick up some of that stuff and realize, oh, okay, that's, that's what he does. And and I know that some of you are extremely qualified at this stuff, very experienced. You've got your own ideas at work. And if you have some really good ideas, I hope you send them to me because sharing ideas with other hunters is probably the best way I know to sort out your bag, if you want to call it that, your pack, sort out your gear list. And <clears throat> the way I approach it, is I have, and this is why I called the one video the base gear list, I kind of have my absolute basics of this is what I use, whether it's a, a backpack hunt or not, whether it's archery hunt or rifle hunt, whether it's elk or, or whitetails, whether it's early season, late season, there are certain core things that never leave my pack. And the, from that core base, then I will look and say, all right, this is going to be a late season, November, let's say elk hunt. Well, I know I'm going to bring a puffy coat because it's going to be cold. I know I'm going to bring this. I'm, I'm going to bring that. I'm probably going to be doing a lot of glassing. So even though I may not have a spotting scope on an archery hunt, I'm definitely going to have one on a late rifle hunt. So what, what I start with in this base package, it never leaves that pack. Any time of the year, any species, when I grab that pack with that base package in it, I know that I can probably get by with that if I have to. So, and uh, <clears throat> the 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 first question I want to get into is uh, I, I get lots and lots of emails from people who say, "Randy, I live in you know name whatever whitetail state it is, and and this is going to be my first elk hunt, or I've been out on a couple elk hunts, and I, I really think I need." to buy a new rifle and who am I to say don't go buy a new rifle I mean any excuse to buy a new rifle you need to take advantage of that but 
my point in what I'm going to say here is I would way rather that you save your money on a rifle and, and use it to go on a hunt. Obviously, if your budget uh, is uh, able to accommodate a new rifle, go for it. And you all know that I use the Howa Alpine Mountain Rifle as kind of my go-to rifle. So if you want one of those, please add it to your arsenal. But uh, r- really, with elk hunting, the, the caliber selection, as long as it's within a reasonable range, and I know guys who've killed the elk with a 243. For me, and again, what you're hearing are Randy's personal opinions. A 243 requires you to be extremely, extremely selective in your shots. Um, and, and I get that. Um, I, I try to be as extremely selective as possible, even if I have a 30 caliber. But for me, if I'm looking at elk hunting, I'm probably starting at one of, tw- one of the 25 calibers, uh, you know, working my way up from there. Uh, my first four elk I killed, I killed with a 270. And that 270 was loaded with 150 grain Nosler partitions, and all four of those elk required one shot, and they were done. So it, if you have a rifle that can kill a deer that you use for whitetail hunting, it's with good bullets and by good bullets i mean bullets that are constructed well and the ones that i use are partitions acubons and and nozzler has this e-tip um whatever bullet you use if you're elk hunting make sure it's a quality constructed bullet you take a high quality bullet in i don't care if it's a 270 a 7mm anything you know it doesn't have to be a 30 caliber it is going to kill an elk if you are good with your shot selection and your shot placement and you are selective in, in how you take your shots. Um, my, when I answer the question often, I'm sure I sm- sound like a smart aleck because I, I say, well, the best elk rifle is the, the rifle that you shoot most accurately. Um, and accuracy to me outweighs the caliber. Uh, if I was doing a graph and I was going to weight uh, each of the criteria by some factor, uh, accuracy of the rifle itself, accuracy of the round you shoot through that rifle, and your accuracy with that rifle are probably going to get weighted heavier than anything else I can tell you. And then after that is going to be the quality of the bullet that you load in that, that round that you're shooting. I I don't know any elk that can take a 130 grain bullet, a well-constructed 130 grain bullet in the lungs and walk away. Um, (laughs) I've heard stories where people said, oh, I hit him right in the lungs and he just walked off. Well, I got news for you. If you hit him in the lungs, he didn't walk off. Or if he walked off, you didn't hit him in the lungs. So that's, uh, that's kind of my and I know it sounds really general, but for those of you listening who are thinking, oh, I got to have a 338 or I need a, you know, one of these souped up Magnum 30 caliber plus rifles. Hey, if you want one, that's one thing, but don't try to justify it to your spouse based on the idea that that's the only thing that's going to kill an elk. You're going to be way better off to save that money, to buy other gear, to buy good stuff. Um, and, to spend it on, on tags and the actual hunt itself. So I, my personal, uh, rifle, my go-to for everything. And and some people kind of look at me funny is a 308 win. Um, 
you know, you put 165 grain, 180 grain, I've got um, multiple 308s and some of them like 165 grain better than the 180 and some it's the other way around. But that's, that's more than enough to kill elk. Uh, last fall, I killed the largest elk I've ever killed, and I had 165 grain uh, E-tip bullet. And at 309 yards, I extracted the bullet off the the hide on the far shoulder of that bull, and uh, he was dead. It's you know th- those who laugh at you know smaller calibers, 308, 7mm, 8s, 25 out six. You know, they, they're they're very effective in the hands of people who know how to use them. So don't don't let uh don't show up at camp and feel that, oh, I gotta be one of those guys toting a, a rifle that you're not accurate with just because your buddies have one. If your buddies can shoot a, a three thirty-eight or a three hundred ultra mag really well, hey, even better yet. But my experience has been most people without significant muzzle brakes and bench rests don't shoot super large calibers very accurately for very long. So that's that's kind of my, my very first question. And the reason it's the first one is just in the last month here, this winter, uh, I've probably got that question five or six times. And I just, I want all of you to go elk hunting, not uh, go to the sporting goods store and just buy rifles. No, don't, well, let me restate that. I want you to go and buy rifles, but not at the expense of, of getting your chance to go elk hunting. So, <clears throat> and then uh, one of the things I, I wrote down is uh, as a person who came to this as a deer hunter and really, really tried hard, I, I wanted to kill an elk in the worst way. Uh, anyone who, who thinks Randy Newberg's an elk expert uh, <laughs> I hate to, to let you down because I'm not, um, what, what took me seven years to do some of you guys do in one day. Uh, I, I moved to Montana and it was my, actually my sixth hunting season that I finally killed a bull elk. And in that process, I went through a lot of trial and error. I had tried some really dumb things and through trial and error, I had actually discovered a few things that would be helpful, uh, both from a tactic standpoint, but often from an equipment standpoint. A couple things that I really came to appreciate after spending, I don't know, each elk season, I'd probably spend 15 days in the hills. And that was before I started the TV show. Um, It became very apparent that every backpack I had been trying really did not do what I needed it to do. Um, So back, I think it was 2007, I finally went and bought a really good backpack, an internal frame pack with great waist belts. Um, The one, all of you see me using it, I use a mystery ranch. Uh, Depending on the hunt, uh, if it's a day hunt, often I'll use a a longbow. If it's, probably my go-to pack is their Metcalf. Uh, and if it's a long multiple day hunt, I use their Marshall. And the reason that I like them is they can collapse down to just about nothing. Uh, so they're very flat. Um, and when you shoot something, then you can use the, the bags on them based on, you know, how big of a bag you need. You can fill that bag with hindquarters and everything else. And, and you almost have to, to see them in action, uh, go out and see their videos to understand, uh, how, how applicable they are to hunting. 
So getting a really good backpack was kind of the starting point for me of, of realizing, you know what, how hard I hunt is going to determine how successful I'm going to be. And how hard I can hunt is going to be a factor of my gear and my clothing and my boots and my everything else. So I'm going to focus on getting what works and nothing more. So uh, having a really good backpack for me coming to this as a whitetail hunter was a very, very helpful thing. Uh, It didn't take me very long in the mountains to realize that a hiking staff or trekking poles uh, are super, super helpful if you're going to cover a lot of miles. Um, If I was you, I'd look into a pair of trekking poles. Uh, The other mistake I made is I, for years and years, I kept thinking I could save money on boots. Uh, I'd never owned a real high quality pair of boots in my life. And so I thought, well, you know, this $80 pair will work or this $50 pair will work. And if they don't work, I'll just buy a new pair. And well, (laughs) uh, my feet, my knees, my legs, everything pretty much paid for that over the course of time. And finally I, I started upgrading my boots and you'll see in the one bag dump video where I talk about boots and keeping your feet warm. Um, I use kind of track boots. Um, but when I talk about what I use, I, I'm not saying that that's the gospel. I'm just telling you I use it. And more importantly, I want to tell you why I use it. And that, that's where boots come in here about the why part. Uh, so many people will email me and say, Randy, what boot do you use? And I tell them, but I also tell them, make sure you go and have your foot measured by someone who knows the sizing of boots. And put that boot on because some of us have a different foot platform and not every boot is made from the same platform. For me, I'm lucky. The Canatrack boots fit my feet amazingly well. I mean, superbly comfortable, everything I would want for in a high quality boot. And they're built really well. Whatever you do when you buy a boot, just make sure that you've tried it on, make sure it's sized properly, and make sure it is a high quality boot that fits your foot platform, that the platform of the boot fits your foot uh, design, if you want to call it that. Your your foot structure, your your width, your you got a narrow heel, a wide heel, do you have a high arch, a low arch? Those kind of things are very important and proper fit for a boot. So when you do that, Go and try it on and and just make sure, because if you don't, I can assure you, you're going to have some problems with a bad fitting boot. It might be the best boot that you could have ever found, but if it doesn't fit your foot properly, you've probably wasted your money. And since I'm I'm on the boot thing, um, I'll, I'll just go into one related question of that, is that a lot of people will ask, well, how do you keep your feet warm? Um... Growing up in northern Minnesota, trapping, ice fishing, hunting, logging, doing everything I did when it was super, super cold, 20, 30 below. Um, Maybe I I acclimated to cold weather, but I'm one of those lucky guys who I really don't get cold feet. Um, And I don't know if it's just genetic, if it's just the way it is, uh, or if it's because of what I do. And I'll just tell you the precautions I take to keep my feet warm. I see a lot of guys... They're at the gas station in the morning getting their coffee or they're at camp and they're getting ready to drive out to the trailhead and they already have their boots on. I never 
put my boots on until I get to the trailhead. I carry a pair of socks uh, that I wear when I, we'll just walk through what a morning is for me. I get up, I, I throw my, <clears throat> all my gear in the truck and we head to the trailhead. Well, when I'm going to the trailhead, I've got a pair of socks on that I don't plan on wearing that day. And I'm probably wearing some slip on boot, you know, muck boot or a, a, a Merrill boot or something. And when I get to the trailhead, I take off both that boot and that sock and I let my feet dry. I then put on a fresh pair of, of high quality wool socks and then I put my hunting boot on and then I do it on the other foot. And in my pack, I've also got another pair of dry, fresh socks. Um, moisture is what's going to get your feet cold. And if you're riding in the truck or you're walking around camp with your boots on or at the cafe in the morning having breakfast and you got your boots on your feet are sweating immediately and that's just that's the human body your the moisture can no longer evaporate it's going to be inside your boot and you're going to get cold feet and a lot of times when I hike up the the ridge and I might be hiking for an hour or two when I get to the ridge and I know I'm going to be there for a long time I will then take the the take my boot off take off that sock that was damp as I, that got damp from me walking up the hill. And then I will dig the socks that I brought with me out of my pack. I'll dig them out of my pack and I'll put them on. And I'll usually let my boot cool off and dry while, while I'm doing this. And then I put the boot back on and now I've got dry feet. I've got a boot that's allowed a lot of moisture to get out real quick. And I can usually sit there all day long and I don't get cold feet. Uh, a lot of people ask me, well, do you use an insulated boot, non-insulated boot? For me, if it's anything down to zero, I, I use a non-insulated boot. I just adjust by my sock uh, thickness. Once it gets below zero, I use a 400 gram insulate boot. Uh, and I, I don't have a boot with any more than that. Um, part of that is because how I hunt, it's very active. My feet aren't going to get cold when I'm hiking. Uh, the other part of it is that I just, I'm very meticulous about how I keep my feet warm. So if, if you're, uh, having cold feet, try some of this. I, I'm not going to say it works for everybody because some people will have, there's a condition called Raynaud's. Uh, my son has it where as quick as you get slightly cold, your extremities, their blood flow goes. And if you have Raynaud's, you know, your toes and your fingers just turn purplish white. It's, it's not pretty. And if you have a condition like that, I don't know if, if any of these tips are going to help you as far as keeping your feet warm. But anyhow, quality boots for me are probably that base core item that if you're getting into elk hunting, come out here, you know, if you're coming like I did from the Midwest, make sure you have a high quality pair of boots, make sure they're broke in. And, and also, um, if they're leather boots, which they probably will be, if they're a high quality boot, treat them with some sort of, of, uh, waterproofing treatment. Leather itself is not waterproof. You have to continue to treat it. I, I put the treating, uh, whatever you want to call it, pitch, uh, makes this pitch blend boot treatment. Uh, and I probably treat my boots every two weeks when I'm hunting and just because I want to keep that moisture out of there. Again, moist service evaporation means five times or more heat loss. So, um, that's, uh, 
that's one uh, thing I, I just won't compromise on is boots. The, the other thing that, that struck me, and it still strikes me, is how many emails I get where guys say, you know, I understand, Randy, where you say you got to be up on the mountain, up on the ridge, ready to glass before the sun comes up, but I'm really not that comfortable hiking in the dark. Um, I get that. That, that. You know, that's definitely an issue if, if you're not comfortable with that. But for me, I... I did not start using a headlamp until I'd been into this elk hunting for quite a while. And you're probably thinking, well, gee, Randy, a headlamp. Everybody has a headlamp. <clears throat> yep. Hopefully everybody does. I carry two of them. Um, but the the idea, the, the, the reason I bring that up is that headlamp reminds me that I better be there way before the sun comes up. And with that headlamp, there's no reason that I leave until well after the sun is down, until legal shooting hour is completely gone, done, and over. And that's where equipment and tactics or equipment and strategy kind of start to mesh. I, I have seen guys without headlamps, and I'm like, man, how are they getting in here <laughs> in time to glass? Because if, if you don't get to your, your glassing area, until let, let's say you leave the truck at daylight and you hike for an hour guess what by the time you get back to the good hunting area those elk are already back in their beds at least if you're hunting public land bull elk like i am those bulls once the pressure's been on for a, a weekend or two they're gone I, I mean if you aren't there right at daylight you're really not gonna see them so i i always use that that uh headlamp as kind of my reminder Okay, Randy, stay later, leave earlier. Um, so uh, we're moving into kind of the, the next logical part of that is I used to be a compass and map guy. Um, I don't know. I always thought, ah, oh, these GPSs, there's some newfangled gadgetry. I don't need one of those, blah, 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 blah. And I'm still pretty comfortable with a compass and a map, uh, you know, it, it doesn't do any good to have a compass and a map if you don't know how to use it. So if you, uh, if you do, uh, get a compass, make sure you know how to use it. There's a lot of good online videos about how to use compasses. Uh, but over time, the curmudgeon Randy became a pretty big fan of GPSs. And I really don't, there's two purposes that I use them for. One is, um, I'll, I'll give you kind of a strategy of, of how I do this. And in my five days that I have, when I go to a new place that I've never hunted before, um, I have five days to, to find elk, to get some encounters on film and hopefully fill a tag. And when I show up, I have to have a strategy in place. And here's kind of how that strategy works and why a GPS is so important to that strategy. When, when I show up, my map probably has 10 spots on it that are likely spots. And they're likely based on, okay, what time of the, the year am I hunting elk? What pattern are they gonna, going to be in based on that time of year and pattern? What are their needs? Where am I going to find those needs? And where I'm going to find those needs are the spots I have marked on my map. So I show up the... You know, I try to get there a day early to scout if I can, just because it's that one day of scouting is so helpful. A lot of times I can eliminate uh, one or two places just based on what I see scouting. And and for me, 
Scouting is about eliminating territory. And I know a lot of people say, no, Randy, scouting is about finding elk. Yes, you find elk, at least I do, through a process of elimination. So if I've got these 10 spots on my map, my goal is to eliminate as many of them as possible so that in that final two days of my hunt, I want to be down to maybe two or three of those 10 spots that those are the places where the elk are. And sometimes in our our process of checking out all these other spots, yeah, we fill a tag and and that's part of the hunting process. Um, But here's how a GPS really plays into that. Uh, I get up the first morning. Usually I have to go into some place I've never been to uh, and I'm walking in in the dark and, and so often... You, you know how it is. You end up on the wrong ridge or you thought, oh, gee, I thought this was a shortcut. And you find out that that shortcut on your, your GPS or your map was a disaster. It's deadfall. It's this. It's that. It's cliffed out. So I usually don't have too big of expectations my first morning. Um, if that scouting day has let me, um, maybe I could have looked over the terrain and saved myself some headache going in in the dark that first morning. But now after the first morning... What I'm doing is I've probably crossed one or two spots off my map. I then, that afternoon, go in with my GPS and mark a trail in the daylight to get me to what is a good spot that I think will be a good glassing spot. And so by being able to mark that breadcrumbs trail with my GPS in the daylight, if I do find elk in there, uh, say I see them from far off, or maybe they they were just a half mile off, but it got dark before I could get to them. And, and we all know how often does that happen. You're sitting on the rock, you're thinking, well, today isn't going to be the day, and you look, oh, wow, there they are. They're 600 yards away, or they're 1,000 yards away, but you're out of light. You can't get to them, you can't drop off the ridge, go three canyons and get over there. So you know the next morning that's where you're going to be. And for me, that's where a GPS is super, super important in marking my trail, going back out and coming back in so that I can do that in the dark. I don't get turned around. I don't take the wrong turn. I don't this, I don't that. So that when I leave the truck, I know that, hey, in two hours, I'm going to be on that rock overlooking that basin where those bulls were last night. And for me, trying to have done that with the old map and compass would have been way, way more difficult. So that's, that's one of the, the, the reasons that I've become so attached to the GPS. And, and the other reason, you guys see it in the show. You've heard me talk about it many times on the podcast. If you read my, my stories out on Hunt Talk, you've heard me write about or you've seen me write about it out there a lot. And that is a GPS map system or map chip. Uh, a lot of the places I apply for have uh, public-private land ownership problems. And by that, I mean access can be difficult. And when you need 10 to 12 tags a year for a TV show like I do, you need to apply in places that have better draw odds. Well, what places have better draw odds? Those places where people say, I don't want to screw with the headache about private property. I get that. All things being equal, I wouldn't want to either, but I have to to get enough tags. And as a result... I've become very dependent upon the Onyx map chip. Um, you, you can get them for any state. You go to onyxmaps.com, and I, I it, it is at the top of my don't leave home without it equipment list. Uh, 
They're, they're a little micro SD card that fits in the back of your GPS. And now they have the new systems, uh, the new apps that you can do right on your smartphone. Um, if, you know, a lot of people who are smarter than me are uh, way handier with their smartphones than they are GPS. Um, and I'm getting there. I'm working on it. By this fall, my goal is that the new app from Onyx Maps is going to be one of my go-to items and I can drop my crutch of, of my GPS. But the, the reason that that's so important is if you want to draw more tags, you can do so by applying in some of these areas that have harder access. But really the only way you're going to have success in those places with harder and, and more challenging access is if you have that map chip from Onyx Map. So that's to me is is extremely extremely important to have something like that. Uh, and I don't use it because I'm worried about getting lost. Um, I feel very fortunate that I've I have a pretty good sense of direction, and pretty much every hunter I know has a dang good sense of direction. And and most of the guys are are not uh, using their GPSs because they're afraid they're going to get lost. They're using it because, hey, I want to get to this waypoint in the dark or, or the examples that I've used. So, um, oh, man, I, I don't think I'm going to get through this list very quickly or it's going to be about an eight-hour podcast. <laughs> I'm looking at this list, and there is a pile of stuff here that, that people have asked questions on. Um, but I'm going to jump into a few more of them. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at what my pack looks like when it's sitting there on the ground and both some things that are hanging out of it and some things that are inside it. And one of the things I'm going to just quickly mention is I use these, uh, platypus water bladders. Um, if it's warm weather, I use the one that has the tube that comes out and, you know, it has the mouthpiece that you can bite on and you can suck water out of the, the bladder. Um, I'm trying to remember how big mine is. They, they call them a big mouth. And again, I don't get paid anything from platypus. I don't, you know, I don't even know if, <laughs> I think you got to buy them at REI or somewhere. You can't really, normally you can't get them at hunting stores. But the reason I use them is I've used every other water bladder system I can think of, and every one of them have failed me somewhere along the way. Uh, most often, it's when I have 80 pounds of a hind quarter in my pack, and all that weight and all that pressure, boom, blows up the bladder. Uh, sometimes it's been because I've, I just leaned back on a rock or something, and, and it just couldn't withstand that. <clears throat> when it's really cold... Um, I don't use the platypus, uh, bladders that have the, the tube coming out of it. I use their, I think it's a two liter bag is the one I have. And, and they're very flexible. They're, they're very, very solid, uh, you know, construction. And I, I use that because I have a weird liver condition that if I get dehydrated even slightly, uh, it's bad news for me. And so I, I have to pay a lot of attention to that, but I, I look at that and I see a lot of other people that are carrying water bottles or Nalgene bottles. And if that's what works for you, Hey, that's fine. Uh, I completely get that. I just like something that as I drink out of it, I can flatten it down and it doesn't slosh and make noise and, and stuff like that. It's reusable, <clears throat> um, works great for me. But when I'm out there, sometimes I'm, I'll carry all the water I need for a day and sometimes I'll just 
bring a filter, especially, obviously, I'm, I'm going to filter if we're on multi-day trips. And I use this big Katadyne base camp filter. Um, it will filter so much water so fast. And I've got pumps and I've got the straws. I, I've got them all. Um, but for multi-day hunts, uh, especially if there's more than one guy, that Katadyne base camp fil- water filter is the best thing I've found. Um, and inside my pack <clears throat> that I never, this is part of my emergency kit. Um, there's these little, two little bottles called Aquamira tablets or not tablets, droplets. And many times I've run out of water and I got to a water source that was kind of tainted. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to change chance that. And so Aquamira tablets can really get you out in a pinch, uh, if, if you don't have them, they weigh just about nothing. They're super, super uh, useful when you're in one of those crazy conditions. Your water's still going to taste like, <laughs> I was just going to say something, but I, I'll save that for myself. It's going to taste poor. It's not going to taste like high quality water, but at least it'll be free of bacteria, free of uh, all the boogies that that will give you a serious gut ache. Um, so that's... That's what I do. I, and, you know, I, when I was a whitetail hunter as exclusively, I never worried about water. I might carry a little water bottle of some sort in my pack. But when you're elk hunting in the West, you know, an average day for us is 8 to 12 miles in the mountains. You you need a lot of water. And even when it's cold, you need a lot of water. So I, uh, I wouldn't skimp on that. And that's, for those of you who asked that question, I hope that answers it. Um, I took a bunch of questions that were kind of all related to water sources and, and tried to answer them in, in that one little bit there. Uh, so then when I, <clears throat> when I look inside my pack, uh, there's two things that are in there. Um, there's the obvious knife or knives and then game bags. Uh, so many people ask me what I use for game bags and we have a video out there called the gutless method. And if you go to YouTube and you type in, uh, Randy Newberg gutless method, uh, we did it for another group and, uh, you'll, you'll see how, how we do that gutless method. But the important part of that is having the good game bags and having the knives to do that method. Um, and for me, I'm a big fan of the replaceable blade, the, the scalpel blade knives, uh, Gerber makes one called the Vital, and I've tried all of the replaceable blade knives, and the Vital has the best blade replacement mechanism that I've found, um, and it just works super good. Uh, I do like to carry a traditional folding blade, really, really uh, durable blade knife with me, um, and I'll use that at times for when I'm breaking down an elk, I'll use it around the quarters, uh, or when I'm doing the quarters around the knees, you know, when you're taking the hawk off the, the upper leg, um, that lower leg part, that knee joint there, just always really hard on a blade. And, and sometimes if you can lay a little more torque to it, uh, having a bigger blade is helpful there. And then when I'm doing the I call it the universal joint. I don't know what it's called at the top where the last vertebrae attaches to the skull. I'll use my little vital and the scalpel blade to go in there and cut the tissue. But a lot of times on something like a big elk, those that, that where that bone on the, the skull 
attaches with all that tissue and that tight joint right there with the with the final vertebrae having a really good durable stiff edge uh is is priceless right in there for that work and so gerber makes uh what's called the gator premium and i've been using the the gate the gerber stuff now for this will be my second season on it and and like a lot of things i say hey send me stuff and I'll see how it works. And well, I, I was very impressed with both the vital and the, the Gator premium. And so that's what you'll see in my pack. Uh, I, I want to have a replaceable blade knife with multiple blades. And then I want to have one really good fixed blade knife, like, like that premium, that Gator premium. I, I think I, at one time I, I, I quit counting, but I'd done two black bear I'd done a Sitka blacktail and I'd done a bunch of beaver. I do a bunch of trapping in the spring. Uh, and I still had not touched the edge on that steel. So I want something that's durable, uh, something that will stay sharp for a long time. And that I, I really, if I can help it, I really don't want to carry a, uh, a, a sharpening steel with me. Um, <clears throat> and then since most of the places that we shoot critters, uh, we're taking them out on our backs, game bags for me, I don't skimp on game bags. Uh, I've tried them all. Uh, I've tried at one time I used to carry, uh, pillowcases and, and they'll work. Uh, they're cotton though. And they work good for me until one time I was on a hunt and it rained and that moisture would not get out of that, uh, cotton pillowcase. And I ended up with some meat spoilage after the rain left and the sun started coming out and things I thought were drying off. Well, I ended up with meat that was pretty damp and it got a little bit warmer. And anyone who knows about bacteria, moisture and heat and a source for the bacteria to grow, i.e. meat, and you got more bacteria than you want. So after that incident, <clears throat> I started looking for synthetic game bags because synthetic game bags will transfer moisture really, really fast. Uh, it will put that seal, kind of that thin crust on the outside of your meat uh, really quickly. They're super strong. And uh, the the other part of them being strong is uh, I also went through that phase where I used the cheesecloth or the mesh type game bags. And if you go and hang, uh, say you bone out a hind quarter of an elk and you go and hang that in one of those mesh, mesh cheesecloth type bags, you are going to spread the fabric very, very far on that game bag. And the danger at that time of year is flies laying eggs on your meat, which eventually is going to become maggots. And that's the, the, it's very possible for flies to penetrate a mesh game bag if there's a lot of weight. Say you're hanging it off a of limb because you want the wind to get to it and cool it down. Synthetic ones are super strong. The, the, fabric does not stretch like that so it's it's going to result in cleaner meat and it's going to keep uh insects and flies and stuff off the meat and the ones that i use and again i don't get paid anything for saying this uh i use the ones by caribou game bags uh i've used pretty much like i said every game bag out there and these are the ones i i've settled on just because they work so well for what i do uh they you can rewash them you can reuse them uh don't loan them to your friends odds are you won't get them back i 
I've got some pretty skanky looking ones. I, I, I go and I, <clears throat> I wash them as good as I can, but I, I might be a little bit lazy. I, I wash them in the utility sink and call it good. Um, and they just use, you can use them year after year after year after year. Uh, <clears throat> sorry about that. I'm talking too much, getting a sore throat here. So now I'm going to call out <clears throat> all you guys who I watch on TV who don't use latex gloves. Um, as a guy who trapped all my life, uh, just last spring, uh, I caught 300 muskrats in a couple weeks, and I love trapping uh, just for fun, make a little money. But anyone who traps a lot quickly realizes that not wearing latex gloves is a good way to get all kinds of infections and other problems in open source. Uh, and so <clears throat> I look at how lightweight a latex glove is. And if it's going to keep me from getting some sort of strange bug, some sort of disease, some sort of whatever, um, I'm putting them on. And when you're, when you're doing it, because your hands are staying dry, they're staying warmer if it's really cold weather. And it cleans up way, way faster. So if, if for no other reason other than just the, the health benefits of not getting some sort of hoo-boo uh, from a critter, uh, wear latex gloves. I, I, I know it, it might take one extra second to put them on, but gosh, I, I, really, uh, I really can't overemphasize that enough. And you can go down to Walmart or Kmart or wherever and you can get a box of a hundred of them for like six bucks or something. So <clears throat> I don't want to see one of you guys sending me a picture of a big swollen up thumb that might have to be amputated because you got gangrene or something and you weren't wearing your latex gloves. But, <clears throat> and the one part about uh, this whole pack game bags, knife gloves thing is so often I see guys leave the trailhead and they have a fanny pack on. And I, Maybe this is judgmental on my part, but when I see somebody leaving the truck with a fanny pack, I'm like, you know what? That guy doesn't plan on shooting anything today. It's just the way it strikes me. Um, having a good pack that you can use as your day pack and compress it really flat like I can with my Mystery Ranches or whatever brand you use, that saves you one full trip because now when I shoot that animal, I'm coming out that afternoon, that night, whatever, my first trip back to the trailhead, I've already got 80 pounds or a hind quarter or something in there with me. If you're just using a fanny pack or a little, you know, camp pack, whatever, you know, Boy Scout looking pack, you aren't hauling anything back on your first trip. And I know a lot of guys say, well, I come back and get my, my, uh, external frame meat hauler after I get them all taken care of. Well, I don't know. A lot of times I shoot them further from the truck than good judgment tells me. And I don't want to waste a trip by uh, having to go back and get a mead hauler. That next, that trip, that first trip I make back to the trailhead, I want to be taking a hind quarter with me or taking, you know, the back straps, tenderloins and a bunch of trim meat or something. And, and so when I see guys heading out with, with just these little waist belt fanny packs, I, I guess it's what we all grew up with. Um, but I would think about finding a backpack that's more versatile and can carry heavy loads, but yet compress down to uh, uh, 
a, a true day pack if if that's what you want to use it for. Oh wow, holy cow! I am I don't know how I'm going to get through all these, but people want to talk about optics. They want to talk about maps. They want. <laughs> all right they want to talk about rifles um i'll just tell you my thought on rifles i and i talked about it in my discussion and calibers earlier <clears throat> and uh for me i i want whatever rifle is most accurate it's just that simple and over the course of time i've owned semi-automatic rifles i've owned every type of rifle that i think they make and the most accurate rifles I've found are bolt action rifles. Doesn't mean you have to use a bolt action, but you you go to the Midwest and and often you'll see uh, semi autos or pump action rifles. Uh, out west, most of the guys I know use uh, bolt actions, and that's not for one reason or the other. Just because that bolt actions are inherently more accurate, and I'm more concerned about the first shot than I am having fast follow up shots. Uh, so, and when, <clears throat> when people ask me, uh, how can I make, how can I be a better shot? Um, short of practice, practice, practice. Uh, there's a couple things that I've found that really make for better shooting. Uh, the first is practice real time conditions. Don't just always sit there at the sandbags on the bench for me. And, and I talk about this, I, I, and some of these questions brought me to a, uh, a video as part of the bag dump series we did called Shooting Rests, Backpacks, and Bipods. Uh, and in that, that segment, you'll hear me talk a lot about replicating your actual in-the-field condition. Uh, once I get the zero on my rifles, I seldom go out and hunt or, or seldom go out and shoot on bluebird days. I want to go out there and shoot when it's windy. I want to go when there's a south wind and sometimes when there's a west wind. I want to go out there when it's raining. I want to go out there when it's cold. I want to go out there when it's hot. I want to go out there and do things that force me, both my shooting technique and my equipment, to try and experiment with these conditions. Because it's not, (laughs) unless you hunt in different situations than I do, you're not going to be hunting in perfect conditions all the time. So sometimes I'll be out at our shooting range here and outside of Bozeman, we've got a fantastic range called the Manhattan uh, Wildlife Association. It's about 20 miles west of town. And guys will see me laying down. They'll see me leaned up against something. They'll see me on a bipod. And I know they're thinking, Newberg, you knucklehead, why aren't you shooting off the bench? Why aren't you shooting off bags? Um, and for me... It goes back to my first point. Practice is the thing that is going to make you a better shot. And practice in conditions that are a replica of what you have in the hills. I mean, a lot of times when you're elk hunting and you're shooting steep downhill angles, steep uphill angles, uh, you maybe just had to run across some place, you know, you run across this hillside and you just got to throw your pack down and, and improvise. That is something you should be practicing on. Um, once we, you get your zero shooting is, is pretty easy to, to keep tight groups with today's equipment. Um, so, and for me, <laughs> ammo is free. The good folks at Nosler send me as much ammo as I need. So I, I have no reason not to practice and, and I do practice a lot. As far as my equipment, the one thing I do with every rifle I get 
is I do trigger adjustments. I used to have gunsmiths do them. Now I do my own. Uh, And I want to make sure that my trigger is crisp and clean and not a lot of creep. When that, when that trigger breaks, I want it to almost be a bit of a surprise. And my pound poundage, my triggers are all set at two and three quarter pounds. And in the TV show, we have guest hunters and we tell them, Hey, when, when you hunt with us, you're going to have to use our gear and our equipment. And trust me, I, I spent a lot of time setting it up for you. I, I <laughs> after all we go through and all we have invested, the last thing I want is to skimp on equipment and have you not be shooting the best setup I can give you. Uh, but a lot of times the, the first time that guest hunter pulls the trigger, they look at me like, Holy cow, that thing went off quicker than I thought. And I don't want to get to one of those crazy pound and a half triggers where if you breathe on it, it goes off. I mean, to me, that two and three quarter, you know, somewhere around there is that perfect mix of a safe trigger, but yet a very tight, crisp, easy trigger. Because how many of you have been chasing those crosshairs across the body of the animal and you're thinking, oh man, I wish it would go off right now. And then finally you got so much trigger creep or it was such a, a uh, heavy trigger when it finally goes off, you're 10 inches high or low or right or left or whatever. And you're like, oh man, that wasn't a good shot. I want it to go off right when me or the other person is thinking, gosh, I wish it would go off right. Boom is what I'm hoping for. So that's, that's really my one, uh, modification or, or my just don't, don't, uh, don't go out there anywhere to the range or hunting with a heavy uh, trigger or with a trigger you're not uh, happy is is what you need for hunting. It's And I don't care if you put in a custom trigger, if you use a factory trigger. I, I've had many rifles, many different rifles, and some factory rifles just come with triggers that are crap. Um, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> and uh, I've adjusted them. I've done everything I can, and it's like, you know what, this is... This is just not a trigger that's conducive to great accuracy. Um, so, and uh, <clears throat> with with that, then the the other part when we talk about rifles is people ask me, you know, what what scope do I use? And uh, anyone who's watched our show, been on our website, you know that I've been using Leupold optic, optics since Moby Dick was a minnow. Um, I've been using. I'm trying to remember if I've ever had a rifle that didn't have a loophole scope on it, uh, going back forever. But anyhow, the, you guys all know that that's what I use. But oh, what, the important part of that is what of their scopes I use. And when I'm doing mountain hunting and I have these Howa Alpine mountain rifles, they're very lightweight packages. Um, I'm not going to put a big Hubble telescope on them. I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose of of what I want a lightweight, accurate, compact, short action rifle for. So with that, you're on all of, if you grab my 308 uh, Mountain Alpine rifle, you would see that it has a two to 12 by 40 millimeter VX6 from Leupold. It's compact, uh, it's, it's a super, super high quality scope. But with that setup, I'm not shooting seven, 800 yards. Um, I probably could with that, but I'm trying to set all of my equipment up for what I'm going to encounter in the field. And that's why 
when I see guys, you know, they've got a six to 24 power scope. Hey, that's fine. You know, I don't have any problem with that. If that's what you want to tote around the hills, uh, maybe they shoot much longer shots than I do. Um, as far as binoculars, it depends on whether or not I'm going to carry a spotting scope with me. Uh, some hunts I carry a spotting scope, some I don't. Uh, it just depends on what kind of hunt it's going to be. If it's an archery hunt, the odds are I'm not going to carry a spotting scope. Uh, if it's an archery elk hunt, if it's archery antelope or it's archery mule deer, I might. Um, so if I'm not carrying a spotter, oftentimes I'll, I'll use 10 power binoculars. If I'm carrying a spotter, I like the wider field of view. I like the, the greater uh, light, uh, transmission of an eight power. Uh, so if I'm carrying a spotter that I can use for inspection later down the road, uh, then I'll use eight power binoculars. But what, what I would suggest when you're picking binoculars, just find what works for you. Uh, there's no right, there's no wrong. Um, if you're like me and like I said, I had this weird, have this weird liver condition. Uh, a lot of times I get serious, bad tremors. Uh, <laughs> and if you have a tremor, you will realize that a 10 power binocular really magnifies that tremor a lot more than an eight power binocular. Um, and so if you ever see footage of Randy and he's holding on to his baseball cap brim, uh, at the same time he's glassing, it's because he's got a tremor that day and it's, <laughs> it's causing him to look like he's got the DTs or something when he's trying to, to glass. Uh, addition to that, I, I've tried, I think pretty much every bino harness that's out there. Um, I've get sent a lot of them. People ask me, use this, use that, try this, try that. Uh, I actually buy my bino harnesses, uh, and it's from a, uh, FHF gear. Uh, Paul Lewis, he, he makes them. Uh, if you go to FHF fish hunt fight gear.com, uh, I don't get paid anything from Paul. He's just a great guy who makes an amazing product. He hunts like we do. So I, I know that if he's going to make it, it's going to be a good piece of gear. So that's what I use for, for my, uh, bino harness uh, i don't like the ones with the big elastic straps that are bouncing back and forth i want something that's going to keep the lenses covered um, and i've just found that that's that's the best one i i have found you might find something that works better and if so you know go with it uh well what else uh all right um before i forget um i got to talk about uh the research service that i use this isn't equipment but most of you know that i use the go hunt service they have a service called the insider i've been using it for two two application seasons now they just started in the fall of 2014 yeah and so i've used i used it for my 2015 application period now i've used it for the 2016 application period it's a, a really good system it's got draw odds it's got uh, unit profiles it's got so much information that is very helpful to me. Uh, if you were looking around what's called the Randy room up here at my house and saw how much junk I have in so many places about research, I've got file cabinets of research. And on my, my computer desktop, if you saw all the bookmark tabs I have, it gets frustrating. Those of you who do it know what I'm talking about. You know, you got eight different windows open trying to connect all the dots of, of, related information and and go hunt has solved that and if you listen to the podcast uh, i did with lorenzo uh, he's the founder of go hunt um he talked about why he did it and and it's a great service and if you go there 
and you use the promo code Hunt Talk H U N T T A L K, uh, and you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get a free Gerber Vital scalpel blade knife, the the knife I was talking about that we use. So there's a <clears throat> a little benefit for you by using our promo code to go and do that. Um, I suspect you'll you'll spend hours and hours of your time out there doing it. I've sent a bunch of people out there and they email me, email me and say, Randy, I need more time. There's more information here than I can digest. So it's, it's a very helpful, uh, service that they have. Ah, man, I'm doing way, way too much talking here. <clears throat> so I want to touch a little bit and this isn't an equipment piece. Um, and I, you guys have heard me talk about this book I'm working on. I, I apologize. I've been working on it now for over a year and, oh, sorry about that. And so the book is about how we, we, when I say we, I'm talking about our TV show, find elk on public land and it's bull elk on public land. Because one of the things that is just a reality I have to deal with is I go to places I've, I may have never been to. Um, hopefully I've been there before cause it makes it a little easier, but maybe it's a unit I've been to, but I hunted it in a different season. Maybe it was archery last time, this time it's rifle, or maybe last time it was late October, this time it's mid November or something. And so I've really had to develop a system about how do I find elk on public land? And I've, I've talked about this a lot out on our hunt talk forum. So if you want to get more detail on that, you can probably scour the threads of Hunt Talk and find some. And if <laughs> if I ever get the time to finish these last few chapters that the editor and publisher are hounding me for, um, we will have this ebook uh, about how I do this. And it's not going to be any great novel. Um, it's purely information. It's just how we do it. And the only reason I think it's worthy of a book is I got talked into it and I get asked the question so much. And also when I go and do my seminars, it's pretty much what I talk about in my seminars and people come up to me afterwards and say, you need to put that in a book. That would be so good. So <clears throat> I thought right now would be a good time to just give you the outline of how, how I approach it. And, and it goes kind of like this. I look at our hunting season as a calendar and Elk don't go from a January to December calendar. We humans do, but elk don't. Elk really have five calendar periods. We call them months because we break it out into four, four week periods, plus or minus a day or two. But elk look at five periods and it kind of starts from what I'll call the early season in August. Um, you think about, uh, in August, you're, you're, these early season hunts are always going to be archery hunts for the most part. Um, you go to Nevada, Utah, they have early archery seasons. Uh, Idaho, Colorado, they open their archery seasons the last week, usually last week or last weekend in, in August. So during that period, the elk are in the early season. And then it transitions. It's not like they roll the calendar over and the next day it transitions to the pre-rut. But if you can just kind of think of this as a smooth transition of time, and, and I'll just list off all five of them. Early season, pre-rut, peak rut, post-rut, late season. And so what do each of those seasons mean? Well, 
That means that the elk is going to have different needs in each of those seasons. And there's three basic needs that they have at all times. And then there's one variable slash temporary need that is a seasonal need. So the needs that they have at all times that, that never waver are food, water, obviously. Those two, everyone knows that. And for bull elk, security or sanctuary is one of their primary needs. And then we always have breeding as a, as a seasonal need. So people say, well, who really cares what their needs are? Well, for me, I care what their needs are because where I'm going to find elk is driven by where they can satisfy their needs. I, I know people are like, well, that's pretty simple, Randy. Why would you even write a book about that? But so I start with what calendar period or what, what seasonal period am I hunting? And I'll just use the example. Okay, I'm hunting Wyoming rifle hunt in mid-November. Okay, I know that's late season. And then I go and I look at each of these seasons and I say, all right, what are the priority of those four needs during the season I'm hunting? Well, in late November, the, yeah, food is okay, but it's not top priority. Water, well, there's snow on the ground. There's open water in the northern latitudes. That's a pretty low priority. Sanctuary. Okay, I am looking for sanctuaries because survival is their absolute basic primary need in the late season. And I don't care where you hunt. Once you get into rifle seasons, the primary need for the animals, is the bull elk anyhow, is sanctuary and survival. They're getting into their bachelor herds. They're going into the ugly places that hunters don't want to go to. So in an instance like that, I'm not going to look for great food. I'm not going to look for water sources. I'm not going to look for cows because the rut's over. I'm going to look for sanctuaries. And, and I use that as an example to say, all right, of my four basic needs, what's the priority in order of those? I would say my very first priority number one through seven is sanctuary and safety. Priority eight is food. Priority nine is water. And priority 10 isn't even on the map anymore because the rut's been gone for so long. So knowing that sanctuary is the number one need, survival is their number one need at that point in time, it then drives where I'm going to look for the elk because they have went to this location to satisfy that need. So let's roll it back to August, okay, early season. What's the priority need for bull elk on public land in the early season? Well, you can always bet they're, all things being equal, they're going to want to be further away from people, but they're still putting on the food bag. Food and water are very high priority needs. Now, if you're in a southern arid type uh, hunt, say Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, water's going to be higher up the list than it is in the northern latitudes because you get up here to Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Colorado, seems like you have water in every basin. Uh, every north-facing creek has north-facing slope has a creek running down it. So water becomes a little less uh, of a priority need depending on where you're at. But you can count on in an early season, food is going to be the primary need for bull elk through October, through uh, August. Well, knowing that, I'm going to go look for the places bull elk are trying to satisfy the need of food. Well, that's going to be the places with the best grass, the best forbs, 
There's certain foods they prefer at certain times of the year. And I feel that as an elk hunter, the more I know about what their food sources are, what their preferred grazing habits are, and they can be super selective. They will walk through what to the human eye looks like a great beautiful meadow of wonderful grass, and they will go two ridges over because there's some other food source there that they prefer to those grasses that seem like to the human eye, well, why, why would they walk that far and walk past all this great grass? Well, they're that selective. They only have a certain window of time that they have to put on X amount of weight before the rut. And by being super selective and getting the best of the best food, that's how they're going to accomplish that. So I'm going to know what is the forage base in the area I'm hunting before I even get there. That's one of my research projects. What do these elk eat? What's their preferred forage? In, in New Mexico, it might be one thing. In Montana, it might be another. In Colorado, it might be something different. So knowing that food is the number one priority in an early hunt, I'm going to go there armed with my understanding of what food means in that geographic area, and I'm going to hunt where the food is. That's where I'm going to find bull elk. So it, it really gets down to this system of, what is my what is the season I'm hunting? Based on that season, what are the needs the elk have in in what priority do they have those needs? And where do they go to satisfy those needs? Because if you think about well in the breeding season where you know peak rut, the, the breeding is their number one priority. You are not going to find elk in December or November in the same places you found them in September. And it's quite obvious. They have a different need in November or December than they do in September. So don't look for them in the same place. Approach it with, all right, what is my season I'm hunting? What are the needs of, what's the highest priority need for that season? And where do elk go to satisfy that need? And as a general rule, and this is just the Randy Newberg rule that I I use, that all else being equal, they're going to be as far away from people as they can. And that's not a political statement about motorized travel or anything else. That is purely just (laughs) all the studies show. Every elk study out there shows that they prefer to be at least one mile, maybe two miles away from humans. I know how else to say it. If, If you aren't comfortable hiking in and getting an elk out from two to four or five miles back, you're... Odds of a highly pressured public land bull elk hunt being successful are a lot less. And so our whole goal in all this is to give you equipment, give you ideas, give you strategies of how you can be more successful. Part of that is the mindset. And if if you listen to the podcast where I had Corey Jacobson, Corey and I talked a lot about expectations. Uh, And when we were out in the field last fall hunting together, that was one of the big topics of our discussions was what our expectations were. And we kind of started that hunt by saying, well, if we could get one encounter in five days, that'd be, that's pretty good. Um, and I, I just wonder, do a lot of people think, well, if I'm going for five days, I better have six or seven encounters. And maybe you will. Um, maybe it'll just be that perfect condition, but Having the mental expectation of what you're going to have for encounters is very important, but also how much work and effort it is going to take to have those encounters. And 
That's where the, the rule of if hunters are there, elk probably won't be, or if, if elk like it, hunters don't. Um, there, there's multiple ways you can say it is if you want to find elk, go to the places that hunters don't want to go. And the places hunters don't want to go is a function of either topography or geography. Um, it's, it's, you know, geography being how far away it is. Uh, it can, you can call it distance or topography, whatever you want to call it. If, if it's a five mile hike, you're going to have a lot fewer hunters than if it's a one mile hike. If it's a mile hike on flat ground, you're going to have a lot more hunters than if it's a mile hike of steep, terrible, slippery, nasty blowdown. It just, so <clears throat> if you looked at my maps, when I, when I start out with a new tag, especially in post-rut post or late season hunts, the very first thing I do is I take a red marker and I cross, I, I just do squiggle marks across every road because it tells me I, in those type of hunts where the, the sanctuary survival need is the highest priority, hunting near those roads or motorized trails is a low likelihood of success. So on most Forest Service or BLM lands, once I do that, all of a sudden, my map that might have been, you know, 30 inches by 20 inches, I don't have too many spots left on that map to look. And the one the spots that are still there, those are the places I look. And then from those, I start saying, okay, is this, a, you know, does it have a steep climb for maybe 800 vertical feet that's going to weed the people out? Is it four miles in instead of two miles in. I'm just looking for things of either the topography, the steepness, the, the, the terrain, or the distance that is going to thin people out even more. Because time and time again, that's where the bull elk on public land are going to be. And it, if, if you're talking about cow elk, you're going to find them in a different place than you are bull elk in a lot of these seasons. And if you're talking about behaviors of uh, private land elk that get no hunting pressure other than you show up once a year and that's the only hunting pressure they get, well, those elk are going to be way different than the public land bull elk. So for me, all of my hunting, all of this that I talk about, my gear package, my, my whole base package of what I use is set up for the sole purpose of finding public land, highly pressured bull elk. So anyhow, that's, uh, that's how I'm, I'm trying to get this, this book done. And I, I don't know, I need a few more jobs. If it wasn't an election year, damn politicians, I, they, they keep me way, way too busy this time of year. Um, but, uh, so what, get over it, Randy, you, you got a job to do. You, you got to get that book finished. Um, <clears throat> and then, a lot of people look at my camp and say, well, what do you use for tents? What do you use for this? What do you use for that? Uh, sometimes I use wall tents. Uh, I'm, I'm getting to the point now, though, where I'm lazy. Uh, wall tents are a big pain in the butt to set up. Uh, if you're all by yourself, they're, and then if they get damp, uh, you got to hang them up again when you get home and dry them out. So <clears throat> uh, I, a lot of times I will use my Hilleberg uh, backpacking tents, even if I'm car camping or truck camping, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I've started using another tent also. Again, I, I don't get paid anything by them. They're, they're kind of a mix between a backpack tent. They're way too big to be uh, an actual uh, backpack tent. Uh, it's called the Turbo Tent, I think. It's made by, uh, 
who is it? Black Pine Sports in Salt Lake, I think is who makes them. Um, I I use them. They work really good. They're a good mix uh, if you're truck camping. Uh, there, there's more space. There's more room. Uh, they work better than than uh, a wall tent for me because they're easy to put up, easy to take down. Uh, they're almost like a, a pop-up blind, but much bigger. Um, and then <clears throat> if I, a lot of times when we go, uh, I might have spots on my map that are marked where, okay, this spot's 20 miles away from the other spots. I like having a really lightweight tent and, and camp set up then, even if I am truck camping, just because I might be moving in the middle of the hunt and I don't want to have to set up a huge camp, pull it down, move 20 miles to this other spot, set up another huge camp, blah, blah, blah. So, and then that, the, you know, the, the whole goal is hopefully we shoot some, right? <clears throat> I mean, that's, there. we hunt for multiple reasons, but for me, I'm looking for uh, some of this superior, high protein, great uh, food to put on my table. And when I'm out there, uh, a, a big example for me, and I'm going to try do a, a video segment on this and, and show you how I do it. But I need super, super heavy duty quality coolers when we're out for 10 days for me and one or two camera guys. And, and here's, <clears throat> here's kind of how I do it. When I'm at home, my wife and I go in the kitchen, mostly my wife, uh, <laughs> I'll act like I'm going to help. And then she'll be like, would you just get out of here? You know, I, I got to get this done for you. Get out of my hair. <clears throat> but we will go make antelope lasagna. We'll make, you know, bison chili or we'll make, uh, elk spaghetti and meatballs, whatever. We make all these homemade meals. We put them in vacuum seal bags. I uh, use food saver. Uh, and then we make individual packages out of every one of these meals and we package it in a size that okay when I come in at night that looks like a good dinner for me or for a camera guy and we freeze them obviously and when we head out I will have a whole cooler full of dinners homemade dinners like that that have been vacuum sealed and we'll eat them on the road but mostly we'll eat them from camp and sometimes I have two coolers full depending on how many of us there are and how long we're going to be gone and I have to keep those frozen. So I need super, super good coolers. And I use Orion coolers. Um, I've, I've been using them for a year now. And I completely just destroyed or tried to destroy them last year. And I could not. I tested them to make sure, all right, are they going to keep my ice froze for this long? Are they going to keep meat froze for this long? They, they passed every possible uh, <laughs> criteria and test I could put, put them through. So, um, Orion coolers have, have, uh, impressed me and, and I'm using them and I'm going to keep using them, but here's how we use our cooler. Then when I leave the house, the other thing I have is I take milk jugs, the plastic milk jugs, and I fill them about three fourths the way with water. And I freeze those into big blocks of ice. And I will have one or two of my Orion coolers that all they, the only purpose that I have for them is to keep ice frozen so that if I'm in New Mexico and I shoot a bull elk with my bow in September, I've got ice that I can keep that bull cool and we can continue to hunt and try to fill the second tag. So we'll quarter it out, we'll bone it out, we'll hang it overnight, we'll let it get to air temperature. And then 
because I've had these big frozen blocks, these big milk jugs of frozen ice, and they will stay. I tested it this year, and in the Orion coolers, I left them in a motel room for seven straight days at with the temperature at 70 degrees, and there was hardly any melting that had happened. I, obviously, I didn't open the cooler at all. I just left it sealed like I would if I was out in the out in the backwoods. Uh, and when I opened that cooler after seven days, almost all that ice was still intact. So for what I'm doing, if we have two tags or say I got to drive all the way back home to Montana from New Mexico, I have to have frozen blocks, not blocks, frozen jugs of ice. And the reason I don't like, uh, block ice, the reason I don't like cube ice is that stuff starts melting and then you get water. At least with the milk jug, you can control the water from getting in the bottom of your cooler and getting on your meat. And we all know what happens if you let your meat sit in water for a day or two days. Pretty soon you're like, hmm, I don't know that I want to eat that. So when we head out, I have my cargo trailer with a whole bunch of Orion coolers. Two of them are filled with, with frozen milk jugs. And they will stay stay frozen for a week if I don't open those coolers, if I keep them in the shade. And then the other coolers, I've got one or two coolers that are full of these frozen meals that I make at home. And not only are those meals uh, way less expensive than all the other stuff you could buy to eat and, you know, whether it's the dehydrated, rehydrated situation or whatever, um, just the quality of the food is, is that that much better when and I know I won't get a lot of tears over this but when I'm on the road for 100 days uh, (laughs) I'm pretty careful about what I put in my body because you start getting wore down really quick and quality food is is very very important to me obviously if I'm doing a backpack hunt I can't can't do this but if I'm I'm doing a lot of truck camping uh, this is the way I'm going to do it and having super coolers um, having a way to make my own food and freeze that those home-cooked meals is is really important and here's how we do the home-cooked meals I have this big teapot uh, water kettle I put it on my stove and that pot is filled about half full of water So I take one or two of these freezer bags and I put it in that water, put the lid on the pot, turn on the stove and I let that pot come to a boil and I let it boil for about five minutes. And after about five minutes of boiling, I take it off the stove, I lift those bags, those those freezer bags with the meals in them out of the pot, I cut them open and I dump the meal onto a plate or into a bowl and that meal is piping hot. There's no cleanup. There's no anything. It's just, I mean, <laughs> all of uh, our guest hunters and, and people who come along and see us doing it that way, they're like, wow, that's slick. Because after I've been hunting for four days and hiking, you know, 10 miles a day and it's cold and I'm tired, one, I want a good meal. Two, I don't want to have to make a big production for dinner. And then if I make a big production for dinner, the last thing I want to do is spend an hour washing dishes, cleaning up a stove and everything else. So it's, it's just stuff that, that, uh, we, we use. And I hope that for those of you who, who sent the questions about our camp setup and stuff like that, um, maybe we can get into some more, uh, YouTube videos on this and, and it'll give you some ideas, uh, visually of how we do it. But 
that's that's my best effort to answer that question there. <clears throat> um, and I see I've been at it for almost an hour and 25 minutes right now. And those of you driving down the road, I've probably put you to sleep by this time. And I apologize. Uh, I'm not responsible for you falling asleep and going in the ditch. But uh, uh, my apologies if you have. Um, but a, a couple things I'd, I'd like to uh, throw out there is that um, one one thing that we're really working on, and we found that YouTube is a huge help for this, is we're trying to answer as many of your questions as we can. And so many of you are doing a great job of sending us questions. And you can get those questions to me by either uh, uh, the Hunt Talk forum. Uh, you can post them out there. Uh, that That's the best place to post them. Because when we do these podcasts, I go out and I look at all the topics posted on the podcast threads out on Hunt Talk. Um, some people send me private messages. Uh, some of you have my email address and you send me emails. Uh, I, I don't give that email address just because when I'm on the road for 100 days and my wife has to run my email system, um, I just feel guilty when I can't get back to people. You know, you send someone an email and you're like, what the heck, that guy isn't ever going to get back to me? Well, when I get home and I've got 250 urgent emails supposedly uh i just it, it's hard for me to to stay on top of them so hunt talk is the best place to to ask these questions um but when we're seeing them out on hunt talk what we're doing is we're putting together uh, a series list a segment list of videos that we want to shoot and we're going to post them up on our youtube channel so that you can watch these kind of like we did with the the bag dump videos um if you go out there to randy newberg hunter uh you go to youtube just type in randy newberg hunter our channel will come up and if you hit the little subscribe button over on the right hand side of the screen it's free it doesn't cost you anything to subscribe um you'll get notified every time that we post up a new video um and it's just a good way to stay in touch with us right now we've loaded uh the first four episodes of our tv show uh on your own adventures those are all up there uh they're on playlists so you can click a playlist and it'll list season one season two season three season four and in the next month probably month and a half we're starting to load up the last three seasons of our tv show fresh tracks so you'll be able to watch all that stuff out there and uh uh, interspersed among all that hopefully we can get you a bunch of kind of equipment ideas uh strategy ideas and and one other playlist that's out there <clears throat> it's called elk talk that we're doing with the rocky mountain elk foundation and the, the reason i didn't cover it on this podcast but i covered it a couple podcasts ago i can't remember what episode it was it was about drawing drawing western elk tags the normal question I get usually comes sometime in July when all the Western drawings have been completed is, hey, Randy, I want to go elk hunting. What, where can I go? Well, you already missed most, <laughs> most of the limited entry deadlines. So we're doing this segment called Elk Talk, or this series called Elk Talk, and it's broken into three generic segments. Uh, and each segment then has a bunch of supporting videos. And the first one is how to get a tag. So we've walked through, we've already posted Arizona, uh, Wyoming, Utah, uh, New Mexico, and Montana. Uh, we're going to start next week. We'll do Colorado, and then we'll go to Nevada, then Idaho. Then we'll talk about over-the-counter and other options that hopefully, by the time we're done with that part of the Elk Talk series, everyone who wants to elk hunt 
has been able to find a tag. And then the Elk Foundation asked us, okay, Randy, can you talk about some of this scouting, some of this planning, some of this preparation, and do video segments on that? Um, so that's kind of the second group of videos that you're going to see getting loaded up in May, June, probably some in July. And then the last series of videos are going to be more about tactics and strategies of when we're out in the woods. And they're not going to be, you know, the, use this call or use this uh, whatever. It's going to be more about, all right, mentally, here's things you have to do. Knowledge-wise, here's things you have to do. Here are some, just some processes we go through that help you. So I hope you'll go out and, if nothing else, subscribe to the the YouTube elk talk series that we're doing with rocky mountain elk foundation uh, i hope that'll give whether you're an experienced elk hunter i mean some of you guys who've been there done that you're probably gonna look at it and say oh, yeah yeah I, I knew quite a bit of that hopefully even you'll get something out of it and if you're a beginner or an intermediate or someone who wants to get into elk hunting hopefully it's a, a huge resource so you don't have to drive over every pothole along the path of elk hunting that I drove through. Because trust me, if there was a pothole in the path of figuring out how to be a public land elk hunter, I think I hit it with all four tires. I, <laughs> I am not an elk expert. I'm just a lucky guy who gets to hunt elk a lot. And as a result of that, when you hunt elk a lot, you make a lot of stupid mistakes. And if you're you know, somewhat on the ball, you'll at least learn something from those mistakes. So but so that's where we're at right now um i think i'm gonna let all of you go i hope you'll uh go to randynewberg.com if you want to find out anything about us oh and if you go to randynewberg.com um where the other thing we're doing is you can download all of our episodes uh for your you know whether you want to have them on your phone want to have them on a computer whatever uh tablet <clears throat> and yeah unfortunately there's a fee for that convenience uh, but if you go out <clears throat> to uh, uh, randynewberg.com, there will be a link where you can go to our, it's a platform called VHX, where you can download. And we're now bundling them, not just by season, but you'll see we just loaded up every elk hunt that we've ever done, all 24 of them in all of our TV series. And, and as the new elk hunts air in the upcoming season this fall, they'll start airing in July. Uh, we'll be adding those elk hunts to that that bundle that you're packaging pretty soon we're going to do the same thing for mule deer pretty soon we're going to do the same thing for pronghorn and for black bears so uh there's there's all kinds of places that you can get your uh daily dose of of hunting uh information uh go to randynewberg.com and uh we'll have it there for you so and then the last thing, uh, just a little warning uh i'm trying to get caught up on some of the podcasts that that we've uh missed during the transition from 0.0 oh speaking of 0.0 how many of you guys are now sending me emails calling me randy newbird <laughs> uh Renella and Giannis and dan and those guys were doing a a uh what was it uh well we call them blue grouse i can never remember if they're dusky or sooties um up there but they were up in the southeast Alaska doing a grouse hunt, and somebody kept calling one of their they, – they were trying to hunt one of the grouse they heard. They called him Randy Newbird. And so everybody starts sending me uh, emails and Facebook messages about Randy Newbird. And uh, at first I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. But uh, So the transition from 0.0, .0 cost us uh, a, a little bit of, of 
time gap there. And so I apologize for that. I, I think we're close to caught up. Um, and we're going to try to do these as often as we can, trying to do them every week. Uh, but I'm on the road a lot for trade shows. So if I miss a week, uh, give me some slack. And then when we head back out in the field again in August, uh, we'll probably uh, roll it back to the the old schedule of every other week. But I'm I'm trying my best to do them every week while I'm I'm at least not out hunting. So anyhow, folks, thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll share these podcasts with other people. Uh, the more downloads we get, the better for us and the better for for our platform that is all about the self guided public land hunter. And please keep sending more questions. Uh, you guys teach me a lot when you do that. And hopefully we can accumulate questions and, and provide answers that we have or answers of other guys we know who are really good at something. And it'll give you some tips that make you a better hunter. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.